When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. To the people of the state of New York, among the numerous advantages promised by a well-constructed union, none deserves to be more accurately developed than its tendency to break and control the violence of faction. The friend of popular governments never finds himself so much alarmed for their character and fate as when he contemplates their propensity to this dangerous vice. He will not fail, therefore, to set a due value on any plan which, without violating the principles to which he is attached, provides a proper cure for it. Complaints are everywhere heard from our most considerate and virtuous citizens. Equally, the friends of public and private faith and of public and personal liberty, that our governments are too unstable, that the public good is disregarded in the conflicts of rival parties, and that measures are too often decided, not according to the rules of justice and the rights of the minor party, but by the superior force of an interested and overbearing majority. However anxiously we may wish that these complaints had no foundation, the evidence of known facts will not permit us to deny that they are in some degree true. A republic, by which I mean a government, in which this scheme of representation takes place, opens a different prospect and promises the cure for which we are seeking. James Madison, writing as Publius, Federalist Number 10, 22nd, November, 1787. Five years after being rejected by Kitty Floyd and being without a job, James Madison in 1787 helped craft a new plan of government for the United States. If he could get that government off the ground, then there would be no limits to the possibilities for the 36-year-old Virginian. As we'll soon learn more about, though, the future of the Constitution after it was sent to the states for ratification was far from certain. Before we get to that, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Nikki of the Ask the Money Burns podcast for providing the intro quote for this episode. Nikki's podcast is focused on a time over 100 years beyond where we're at in our narrative. In her podcast, Nikki takes her audience through the lives and scandals of the upper echelons of American society around the time of the Great Depression. She introduces us to the heirs and heiresses of the great fortunes of the time and shares with us how the economic downturn impacted their individual trajectories as well as the future of high society in the U.S. You can find As the Money Burns on the website, which is asthemoneyburns, all one word, dot com, or you can search for As the Money Burns anywhere fine podcasts can be found. I'll include a link to the podcast on the source notes page for this episode. Following his victories in the Virginia State Legislature, James Madison started thinking of reforms on a larger scale, especially as he'd been named as one of the commissioners to a meeting of all the states, quote, to discuss the subject of general regulations of trade. Having been a member of the Confederation Congress, he knew that there were severe defects in the national system of government, and indeed had been corresponding with a new associate, James Monroe, about the issues starting in the summer of 1785, asserting that, quote, 
I conceive it to be of great importance that the defects of the federal system should be amended. I apprehend danger to its very existence from a continuance of defects which expose a part, if not the whole of the empire, to severe distress. With his friend Thomas Jefferson in Paris, Madison had turned to him to procure books to ship back to Montpelier, quote, on history, politics, and commerce. And in the spring and summer of 1786, Madison dove into the tomes of knowledge. As described by his biographer Ralph Ketchum, quote, Madison's intense study at Montpelier in 1786, after his sparse breakfast and before the evening games of whist for half-bits, left him as well informed on the workings of Confederate governments as any man in America. It also confirmed his conviction that the United States would be torn by faction within and be a farce in the family of nations unless she took heed of what history could teach her and strengthen her bonds of union before it was too late. In July, Madison headed north and stopped for visits in Winchester, Harper's Ferry, Philadelphia, and Princeton before making his way to the convention in Annapolis, Maryland. Madison did not have high hopes for the success of this convention even before he got to the Maryland capital. He had already learned while in Philadelphia that only seven states had named commissioners to attend, so it was unlikely that much could be achieved. Indeed, as Madison told Jefferson, he was doubtful that even, quote, a handful of narrow commercial reforms was a realistic goal. Madison did see a potential silver lining out of the failure of the Annapolis Convention. It could possibly, quote, lead to a plenipotentiary convention for amending the Confederation. When the date for the convening of the convention arrived, September 11, 1786, only five states' representatives were present, and of those, only three states had enough commissioners in attendance to act. Thus, a committee was charged, quote, to consider and report the measures proper to be adopted by this convention. One of Madison's fellow commissioners from Virginia, Edmund Randolph, wrote up a draft which conceded that, due to the low attendance, quote, the commissioners now assembled have no authority to execute business, and instead recommended that, quote, commissioners ought to meet in the city of Philadelphia on the 10th day of May next, with expanded authority being granted to the commissioners to address, quote, every other matter respecting the Confederation. This, however, was not strong enough language for one of the members of a second committee named to prepare an address to the states. Alexander Hamilton, New York, prepared a draft which did not deny the authority of the Annapolis Convention to act, but instead said that the commissioners, quote, did not conceive it advisable to proceed on the business of their mission. Hamilton went on to issue the call for a more general convention along the lines of Randolph's draft, but warned that the, quote-unquote, delicate and critical state of the United States made it crucial that, quote, a deliberate and candid discussion be held in order to make proposals, quote, necessary to render the Constitution of the federal government adequate to the exigencies of the Union. As described by Ron Chernow, quote, the Annapolis Address, with its conception of the political system as a finely crafted mechanism, composed of subtly interrelated parts, had a distinctly Hamiltonian ring. It reflected his penchant for systematic solutions, his sense of the fine interconnectedness of things. The six months in between the Annapolis and Philadelphia conventions would give Madison and other leaders in various states reason to fear that Hamilton's dire warnings may have been understated. Upon his return to Virginia, Madison discovered that the state legislature was once again considering, quote, 
whether to issue paper money. As explained by historian Noah Feldman, quote, Madison considered paper money unjust and a violation of the Virginia Constitution. By losing value, paper money effectively took property from creditors and gave it to their debtors. The state's reputation and honor would suffer. Feldman credits Madison's considerations of the paper money issue at the time as the nucleus for what would become his, quote, theory of minority protection. Again from Feldman, quote, For a country that had made a revolution in the name of republicanism, the danger that the majority might oppress the minority to serve its immediate interest was the single most significant political problem. This concern did not, however, stop Madison from looking disapprovingly on news arriving from Massachusetts. On the eve of the Annapolis Convention, Daniel Shays, a farmer from western Massachusetts who had fought in the Revolutionary War, led a group of 1,500 men, quote, to a courthouse where judges were meeting to imprison debtors. Shays strode up to the courthouse doors and delivered a petition demanding that the judges shut down the proceedings. State troops were called to the scene, and some 150 men were arrested, but Shays and the rest of the group escaped. Madison described the matter to his father and asserted that, quote, an appeal to the sword is exceedingly dreaded. The discontented, it is said, are as numerous as the friends of government and more decided in their measures. Should they get uppermost, it is uncertain what may be the effect. Part of the reason for Madison's lack of empathy for the rebels in western Massachusetts, despite his interest in protecting the rights of the minority, is likely due to the sources of his information on Shays' Rebellion. Henry Lighthorse Harry Lee and George Washington, who both framed the events in Massachusetts as a sign that, as described by Washington, quote, we are fast verging to anarchy and confusion. Unlike in times past, though, Madison did not wait long before springing to action in response to the various crises occupying his mind in late 1786. On November 1st, the Virginia General Assembly convened, and Madison rose to address the body and denounced the paper money scheme as part of the problem being faced by Virginia and the other American states, rather than a solution. Madison's words carried the day, and the paper money bill was voted down by a strong majority. Next up, Madison introduced a bill on November 6th to send delegates to the convention in Philadelphia in May. After guiding this bill through the legislature, Madison set to work recruiting a key ally to join him at the convention. On November 8th, he wrote to George Washington, citing the general's reports on Shays' Rebellion and expressing that, quote, if the lessons which it inculcates should not work the proper impressions on the American public, it will be a proof that our case is desperate. Judging from the present temper and apparent views of our assembly, I have some ground for leaning to the side of hope. After sharing that the state legislature had agreed to send delegates to the Philadelphia Convention, Madison followed that news up with the assertion that, quote, you will infer our earnestness on this point from the liberty which will be used of placing your name at the head of them. Madison knew that the presence and approval of this work by Washington, a national celebrity decades before the advent of even the most rudimentary of long-distance telecommunication, would actually give it a chance of succeeding. Washington, however, was a bit of a hard sell. The retired general, though concerned about the state of the nation and still willing to commit to serving the public good, questioned just how much of a chance this convention had of achieving a workable solution to the issues of the nation. 
Just getting the folks at the convention to agree would be hard enough. Then, a majority of the nation would have to be sold on the idea. If Washington re-entered the public arena and hitched himself to a failed project, what would that do to his legacy? As Washington later wrote, quote, Never was my embarrassment or hesitation more extreme or distressing. As Madison continued to work to convince the general, he had to turn his mind to convincing the Confederation Congress to allow the Philadelphia Convention at all. In a case of perfect timing, the beginning of 1787 marked the point where Madison was eligible to be a delegate to Congress once more under Virginia's rules preventing re-election in three years after one's previous service in the national legislature had passed. Thus, in early February, Madison made his way to New York City despite what he described as, quote, a northeastern snowstorm incessantly in our teeth. He made it safely through the natural storm, only to find a storm of a human variety in the congressional chambers. Some members opposed the calling of the convention in Philadelphia for the simple fact that it was not expressly provided for in the Articles of Confederation. Out of the chaos, though, came enough of a consensus to allow for a resolution to be approved, quote, formally calling for a convention. Madison used his position in New York, quote, to gather the general sentiments of leading characters touching our affairs and prospects, as well as to continue to appeal to Washington for his participation in the convention. Madison was joined in his efforts by his colleague Edmund Randolph, who was at the time serving as governor of Virginia, as well as Henry Knox, a trusted subordinate from Washington's days as the head of the Continental Army. Madison was able to share firsthand the dire state of the present government as he reported back to Virginia that, quote, Congress was broke. It had issued a call for revenue to pay the expenses and debts of the United States. And in response, only one state, Virginia, had made any provision at all for taxes in support of Congress. As the time ticked closer for the convention to begin, Madison had to wonder whether the center could be held together long enough to achieve the reform for which he hoped in Philadelphia. Meanwhile, Madison interjected himself into foreign diplomacy for the first time. The Secretary of Foreign Affairs, John Jay, had negotiated a treaty with the Spanish minister to the U.S., Don Diego de Gardoqui, which would, if ratified, quote, acknowledge Spanish sovereignty over the mouth of the Mississippi River at New Orleans. For those who had speculated in Western lands and others who had moved west of the Appalachians to settle, This was an unacceptable concession, as it would give a foreign power control over the all-important Mississippi River Basin trade. Thus far, ratification of the treaty had been blocked in Congress, but Madison and a colleague from Pennsylvania, William Bingham, both opponents of the treaty, took it upon themselves on March 13th to approach Gardoqui directly to see what they could achieve in working out alternate terms. As noted by Feldman, quote, By meeting with Gardoqui, Madison was trying to counter the diplomacy being pursued by the national government. Though little was achieved through this effort, this was a learning experience for Madison, which would help him in navigating negotiations with diplomats in the future. Beyond this brief foray into foreign affairs, Madison's time in the early months of 1787 was primarily occupied with crafting a new scheme of government for the nation, the details of which he shared with Washington and Randolph in the lead-up to the convention. Finally, with Washington on board to attend as of March 28th, the time came for the delegates to assemble at Independence Hall in Philadelphia. Except for a couple of notable absences, including John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, 
who were both serving abroad at the time. The Constitutional Convention, as it would come to be called, was a veritable who's who of American politics. With the big names giving gravitas to the proceedings, Madison also knew that he would be dealing with big egos and determined opinions contrary to his plans. Thus, he left New York on May 2nd and took a few days prior to the convention's designated start date to plan for the upcoming debates, as well as meet with some of his fellow delegates, including some from Pennsylvania, including Robert Morris, Governor Morris, and Benjamin Franklin. George Washington's arrival on May 13th was not only a personal triumph for Madison, but the retired general was welcomed to the city, quote, amid chiming bells, booming cannon, and cheering citizens. Due to bad weather leading to travel delays, the convention did not start as planned on May 14th. Even Alexander Hamilton didn't arrive for four more days. With the arrival of the full delegation from Virginia on the 20th, Madison began working within that smaller group to develop a common position. Finally, on May 25th, the Assembly was able to achieve a quorum and begin their proceedings. First on the agenda was choosing a president to preside over the convention, and George Washington was unanimously chosen for the role. Now, this is one of those points where I have to remind you, dear listener, that this episode is focused on Madison and important points that led up to his presidency. Thus, I will resist the temptation to go too far down the Constitutional Convention rabbit hole. There are a few key matters that we must discuss, however, before we move on. First, Madison decided at the beginning of the convention that he would keep detailed notes of the convention's proceedings and thus, quote, chose a seat in front of the presiding member with the other members on my right and left hand. Not only was this an advantageous decision for Madison to make in order to ensure that, both physically and politically, he was at the center of the proceedings, as Singer notes, quote, his, i.e. Madison's act, was even more important because of the convention's self-imposed decision to keep every word of the proceedings secret. Madison's record was not journalism or memoir, but history itself. This self-appointment as the convention's recorder, however, did not mean that Madison would not enter into the debate himself. Indeed, as Kevin Gutzman remarks, quote, Madison's work in recording the proceedings was a prodigious feat in light of his participation as a leading thinker and orator in the convention, in which the editors of his papers calculate that he spoke more than 200 different times. He did not, however, introduce to the legislative body his plans for a new form of government. That task, he left to his colleague and friend, Edmund Randolph, who on May 29th introduced 15 resolutions that collectively came to be known as the Virginia Plan. This plan was based largely on ideas that Madison had shared with Washington earlier in the spring, including, quote, the bicameral legislature, the three branches of government, the national judiciary as one or more supreme tribunals, and the guarantee of a Republican government by the United States to each state. The main point of deviation between Madison's thinking and the Virginia plan proposed to the convention was about the power of Congress to negate the laws of the states. The resolution that Randolph read proposed giving Congress the authority, quote, to negative all laws passed by the several states contravening in the opinion of the national legislature the Articles of Union which limited Congress's power to declaring null and void state laws that, quote, violated the Constitution's express articles. 
Madison, however, felt that there should be, quote, unfettered federal legal authority supported by unhampered federal military supremacy. Madison saw this national veto, as it's been dubbed, as a key, quote, robust mechanism to stop state majorities from oppressing minorities. Again, though it is beyond our scope to go into the ins and outs of the subsequent debates, ultimately, not only would the ideas of the Virginia Plan be at the center of the convention's debates moving forward, it would, by and large, form the framework of the articles that would come to comprise the U.S. Constitution, albeit with some important compromises. Month after month passed, with the convention debating one issue after another. The strain started to be felt by all of the delegates, including Madison. In August, Madison had a bit more stress added to his plate as he received word from Orange County that his father was ill. With word coming in sporadic bursts from back home, naturally, one can imagine Madison's anxiety while at the same time trying to focus in on issues that would help shape the future of the fledgling nation, including the destinies of not only the enslaved individuals already in the nation, but also those who might join them in enslavement. One of the issues that Madison spoke up against during the convention was the proposed limit on the new government being able to act to prohibit the international slave trade. Not only did Madison feel that no limits should be placed on Congress's authority on this matter, he asserted to the convention, quote, that slavery was dishonorable to the national character and argued that there should be no taxes levied on enslaved property as, quote, it was wrong to admit in the Constitution the idea that there could be property in men. Once the compromises related to slavery were made at the convention, though, Madison did not take steps to extricate himself from the role of enslaver, something that we shall naturally talk more about as time goes on. Finally, after months of work, deliberation, debate, and compromise, the convention assembled on September 17, 1787, and the draft constitution was approved by that body to be signed by convention delegates and sent on to the states for ratification. There were, however, some notable holdouts in terms of the signing, including Virginian delegates Edmund Randolph and George Mason, as well as a delegate from Massachusetts who we've already encountered in the podcast, Elbridge Gary. For those who have read ahead, you know that we'll be seeing Gary again in this series, but I digress. Though Madison and his fellow delegates had succeeded in achieving what some thought would be impossible and getting a new framework for the government crafted, Madison still saw the failure to include in it his idea for a national veto as a problematic development. As he wrote to Jefferson on October 24, 1787, quote, Without such a check in the whole over the parts, our system involves the evil of imperia and imperio. If a complete supremacy somewhere is not necessary in every society, a controlling power at least is so, by which the general authority may be defended against encroachments of the subordinate authorities, and by which the latter may be restrained from encroachments on each other. Though Madison's concerns would prove rather prescient to future domestic conflicts and crises, by the time he wrote to Jefferson, there were more immediate issues with which Madison and supporters of the new Constitution, who would be dubbed Federalist, had to contend in order to get the requisite nine states to ratify, and, in particular, key states such as New York, 
Pennsylvania, and Virginia. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. The first opposition came from the Confederation Congress in New York City, which received their official copy of the Constitution on September 20th. Madison quickly made his way back to be on hand to push the Constitution forward through that body. The Congress agreed, after a couple of days of debate, quote, to pass the draft along without comment to the state legislatures, who would, in turn, place it before state conventions. This was only the first challenge, though. And Madison started meeting with other leading Federalists, including Henry Lee from his home state, as well as Rufus King and Governor Morris, to discuss the situation. However, it is his work with two Federalists from New York, Alexander Hamilton and John Jay, that we must turn to now. Hamilton and Madison had been allies in the debates in the Constitutional Convention, and the young man from New York knew that it would be important to get the arguments in favor of the Constitution out there to both embolden Federalists at the state conventions and to convince the public. Hamilton turned to Jay as a partner in this writing project, despite the fact that Jay had not attended the Constitutional Convention and also approached William Dewar and Governor Morris to possibly be a part of the collaboration. However, after it became clear that the latter two would not work out, Hamilton decided to bring Madison into the fold as well. Madison's strength as a partner, beyond just his ability to articulate political arguments and his wealth of knowledge of the various republics in the annals of history, lay in his intimate knowledge of the proceedings of the Constitutional Convention. As Madison received word of the growing opposition to the Constitution in Virginia being led by his nemesis, Patrick Henry, he was glad for the opportunity to help craft talking points which he could use when it came time to return to Virginia. Madison tried to get Hamilton to loop in Rufus King of New York as well, but Hamilton shut down that idea, asserting that King was, quote, not altogether of the sort required for the task in view. The first essay of what would come to be known as the Federalist Papers, written under the pseudonym of Publius, appeared in the Independent Journal on October 27th, 1787. The first essay was by Hamilton, then the next four were written by Jay, followed by four more by Hamilton. Madison had not been brought into the fold until after Hamilton's first essay was published, but as noted by Singer, quote, in the beginning weeks, the demands of their outline and the hungry maw of the New York papers drew the three writers together, and Madison and Hamilton and Jay collegially exchanged drafts of everything. Jay would soon bow out of the project, ostensibly due to suffering from rheumatism, 
But Noah Feldman questions whether Jay backed away as he realized that he was at a disadvantage to his colleagues due to his lack of participation in the convention that had drafted the Constitution. The document was still new to him, and thus, quote, he had not thought through the many relevant issues that would have to be addressed at high speed. Again, as with the Constitutional Convention, it's beyond our scope to go into the ins and outs of all the Federalist essays. However, I do think it justified to take a moment to discuss Madison's first essay in the series, published on November 22nd, as it is, as described by Singer, quote, a cathedral of his philosophy. In Federalist Number 10, Madison puts aside the idea of the national veto and instead focuses in on a quote-unquote theory of enlargement that he argued would help bring stability to the nation under the constitutional system. As we heard in the opening quote, factions were considered a danger to unity by not only Madison, but many leaders of the time. Madison argued that the growth of the nation and, in turn, the nation's population would be a benefit by ensuring the rights of the minority. Madison wrote, quote, Extend the sphere, and you take in a greater variety of parties and interests. You make it less probable that the majority of the whole will have a common motive to invade the rights of other citizens. Or if such a common motive exists, it will be more difficult for all who feel it to discover their own strength and to act in unison with each other. While Madison didn't necessarily want national legislators to represent too many people as, quote, by enlarging too much the number of electors, i.e. constituents, you render the representative too little acquainted with all their local circumstances and lesser interests. He also felt that the scheme under the Constitution would keep them from being, quote-unquote, unduly attached to local interest and more likely to act wisely on behalf of the public good. Though the Constitution was not all that Madison had hoped it would be, his work in Federalist Number 10 clearly showed that Madison was all in and would give his full and unwavering support to the ratification effort. Kevin Gutzman, in his 2012 work entitled James Madison and the Making of America, described Federalist Number 10 as follows, quote, virtually every paragraph sparkles with insight. It is at once so learned and so penetrating that one can barely imagine such a thing appearing in an American newspaper today. Hamilton and Madison would continue to push out essay after essay the next few weeks, but after the publication of Madison's fifth essay, Federalist Number 20, on December 11th, the political theorists from Virginia had to take a one-month break in order to turn to more of the practical aspects of the ratification battle. Though word had arrived that Delaware had become the first state to ratify the Constitution and was followed a few days later by news of ratification in Pennsylvania, Madison continued to receive troubling reports from Virginia. Washington wrote from Mount Vernon on December 7th, reporting that he had forwarded on the first seven Federalist essays which Madison had supplied for publication in Richmond and felt that they would aid the cause in Virginia for, quote, there are certainly characters in it, i.e. Virginia, who are no friends to a general government. Perhaps I might go further and add, who would have no great objection to the introduction of anarchy and confusion. Patrick Henry had been making much noise back in the Old Dominion about the idea of amending the Constitution before it had even gone into effect, something that Madison knew was a non-starter. It had taken months to craft the document as it was, to reopen that door 
and prolong the process would render what was already a challenging task impossible. Madison had already started putting out feelers to express his candidacy for a seat at the state ratification convention, and by December, some friends and colleagues in Virginia were pleading with him to return home in order to be on the ground to counter Henry and the Virginia Anti-Federalist. Madison, however, knew that there was a larger battle at play, so he remained in New York. This didn't mean that he didn't consider the views of certain prominent Virginians and did what he could to influence from afar. On December 20th, Madison learned of his friend Jefferson's objections to the document that had been crafted in Philadelphia. While we won't go into the details of Jefferson's critique, it is important to note that this reflects one key contrast between Jefferson and Madison. As noted by Gutzman, quote, Jefferson did not realize it, but the two of them differed markedly on basic questions of political science. For Madison, the new Constitution held out the hope of strengthening the American Federal Center substantially. Contrast Jefferson, who wrote, I own, I am not a friend to a very energetic government. It is always oppressive. Though this contrast would make their future partnerships interesting, as we have seen, it did not hinder the success of their joint efforts and may, in fact, have been part of the strength of the synergy between the two. Of greater frustration to Madison, though, was the vacillation of Edmund Randolph. Randolph, despite his key role in putting forward the Virginia Plan, at the end of the day had prominently declined to sign the Constitution, instead calling for a second convention to work out remaining issues. Though he was seen as being in the Anti-Federalist camp because of this, and as Patrick Henry had also expressed an interest in another convention, Randolph in late December 1787 was having second thoughts, and certainly didn't want to be associated with Henry and his ilk. However, he wrote to Madison of his concern that a second convention would be the only way to ensure ratification in Virginia. Madison wrote back that this idea was not only unrealistic, but the fact that it was known that Randolph was in favor of a second convention was actively undermining Federalist efforts in Virginia and feeding right into Henry's hands, which Madison was convinced were working towards this union. Madison had only limited time to think about what to do about Randolph, though, as it was time for him to take up his pen once more, and after his break, he would write 22 more Federalist essays on topics ranging from the intents of the Constitutional Convention to the delegation of powers to the federal government to relations between the federal and state governments to the concept of separation of powers. While drawing towards the end of the series of essays, Madison received a letter from his father in early February warning that leaders in Orange County were starting to be influenced by the anti-federalist arguments and urging him to return home, quote, as early in March as you can to counter efforts that were being made to prevent his election as a delegate to the state convention. More calls from friends back in Virginia came in, urging him to return. Even George Washington joined the chorus, warning of the growing strength of the Anti-Federalists in the state. Madison pressed on with his work. After writing about the House of Representatives and proportional representation, Hamilton took the baton with Federalist number 59 through 61, with Madison then returning to write essays 62 and 63, the latter being published on March 1st, 1788. This, however, would be Madison's last work on the series. He had to leave it to Hamilton to round out, for James Madison had to return to Virginia to see to the ratification efforts there. On the way home, 
Madison stopped off at Mount Vernon to confer with Washington about the state of affairs. By that point, six states had ratified the Constitution, but despite the efforts that had been put forward in crafting the Federalist Papers, there were still doubts about New York, and opposition was strong in Rhode Island. Meanwhile, George Mason had joined Patrick Henry in giving vocal opposition to the Constitution in Virginia. When Madison arrived in Orange County, he steeled himself for going out of his comfort zone to do what had to be done. On a windy day, James Madison mounted a rostrum outside and faced the crowd that had gathered to hear him speak. As Madison himself later described, he, quote, launched into a harangue in favor of the Constitution. As described by Singer, quote, his speech was choppy but successful. The voters of Orange County elected him to represent them at the state ratification convention. Across the state, elections to the convention went better for Federalist candidates than the proponents of the Constitution had originally anticipated, but there was still much reason for concern. In the interim, Madison corresponded with his colleague Hamilton, and the two shared their trepidation about their respective state conventions. Finally, on Monday, June 2, 1788, the 170 elected convention delegates assembled at the new academy in Richmond to begin their work. George Washington had opted to not participate in the convention, given that he would likely be the first president under the Constitution and that his participation might be seen as a conflict of interest. But there were more than enough established as well as up-and-coming leaders present to decide the state's fate. Though Edmund Randolph had finally come down on the side of the Federalists, James Monroe had opted to join the Anti-Federalist ranks. While it is beyond the scope of this episode to go into all of the ins and outs of the convention's debate, we should note that Patrick Henry launched his first folly against the Constitution on June 4th, questioning the very authority of the convention in Philadelphia to craft the Constitution as a replacement for the Articles of Confederation. As had been agreed, the first one to come to the Constitution's defense was not Madison, but rather Edmund Randolph. In a penitential move, he explained his decision to not sign the Constitution and proclaimed that, quote, I had not even the glimpse of the genius of America that was reflected in the crafting of that document and urged his fellow delegates to stand with the Federalists supporting its ratification. Though Randolph still felt that it needed improvements, he had finally come around to the idea of ratifying the Constitution in its current form and making amendments after the new government was up and running, which was what Madison had argued to him all along. The threat of disunion that had been growing with Henry's contentious harangues against ratification had been the deciding factor for Randolph's shift. In addition to delivering Randolph firmly to the pro-ratification camp, Henry also provided a perfect opening for Madison early on in the proceedings. Though it had been George Mason who had proposed and the delegates had agreed to consider the Constitution clause by clause, it was his colleague Henry who threw that to the wind and, as described by Singer, quote, stampeded through the document in a passionate denunciation of it. Since Henry had set the precedent, when Madison rose for the first time to defend the Constitution, he was not restricted to talking about a specific clause. Rather, he could deliver a full-throated defense of the whole. Again, as described by Singer, quote, In that manner, Madison proceeded to bat down every arrow Henry had slung at the Constitution, 
from its separation of powers to its apportionment scheme. While Henry had threatened disunion earlier in the year, if Virginia was not able to dictate its terms for the new Constitution, Madison firmly donned the cloak of union and concluded his initial remarks, asserting that, quote, I hope the patriotism of the people will continue and be a sufficient guard to their liberties. His delivery was not in the bombastic, grandiose style of Henry. Rather, it was cool, measured, and reasoned, just as Madison intended. Henry captured the attention of his audience and made himself the focal point. Madison kept their focus on the Constitution and the future prospects that it presented. On and on it went the next few weeks. Madison countered one volley after another from Henry and Mason with the assistance of Randolph. As noted by Singer, though there were 170 delegates to the convention, in the end, only 20 of them were active in the debates. And of those, there were only a handful of key players. With so much of the responsibility for defending the Constitution falling on Madison, it is not surprising that he started to fall ill. However, he kept summoning his will and played every card in his deck to keep things moving forward. He even went so far as to invoke the absent Washington, remarking to the convention that, quote, that man who had the most extensive acquaintance with the nature of the country had even resolved that, quote, some great change was necessary. Finally, on June 25th, 1788, the delegates cast their votes, and by a vote of 89 to 79, Virginia ratified the U.S. Constitution. Madison believed that it had been the Old Dominion which had been the decisive ninth ratification to ensure that the Constitution would go into effect, and thus sent an express rider bound to New York with a message for Hamilton with the news. He would only learn a few days later that New Hampshire had beaten Virginia to the punch on June 21st. No matter. Through two years of efforts, Madison had finally achieved his goal of establishing a stronger framework for the federal government. Little did he know that, in doing so, he had established himself firmly in Patrick Henry's crosshairs. In October 1788, Madison traveled to New York for the final session of the Lame Duck Confederation Congress. Meanwhile, in Virginia, work was in progress in the fall session of the General Assembly to elect the state's first U.S. Senators and make arrangements for the first elections to the new U.S. House of Representatives. Simultaneously, Patrick Henry was hard at work to ensure that Madison was not elected to a seat in either body or in any political office ever again. George Washington, the anticipated new president of the United States, expressed his preference for Madison to serve in the Senate, and indeed, it does seem like Madison had a preference for service in that body as well. However, he did not answer the calls for him to return to Virginia to rally support for his candidacy soon enough. When he finally decided that he needed to meet Henry's challenge firsthand, Madison was struck while en route by a bout of, quote, horrendously painful hemorrhoids, which kept him from reaching Virginia prior to the vote in the General Assembly, which elected Richard Henry Lee and William Grayson as the state's first senators. Surely Madison could win election to the House to represent the district containing Orange County. 
Patrick Henry, however, had a plan to prevent that too. Henry and his associates launched a one-two punch to knock Madison out of the running. First, they pushed through a clause in the elections bill which, quote, required any candidate to have maintained residence in their district for 12 straight months prior to the election. Given all the time that Madison had spent in Philadelphia and New York City, it was hoped that would render him ineligible. Should the voters choose to overlook that, though, they also crafted the new congressional district that Orange County would be in so that it, quote, reached into deeply conservative areas of the Shenandoah Valley and Southside, including the already announced candidate James Monroe's home county. The congressional election was scheduled for February 2nd, 1789, and though, despite recent disagreements over ratification aside, he was still considered a friend, James Madison did opt to challenge James Monroe for the House seat up for grabs. For those of you who have been listening to the podcast all the way through, you know that this is rather of a trend in the relationship between Madison and Monroe. From the Virginia Ratification Convention on up to Madison's assuming office as president in 1809, these two individuals would find themselves in opposition time and again, only to come back together as friends. With the House election of 1789 to represent Virginia's 5th District, voters would find themselves faced with two determined candidates. Both Madison and Monroe had suffered political setbacks in the past and had learned from their mistakes. Both were determined to win and would run active campaigns, crisscrossing the district through a snowy winter to talk with the voters. The two would find themselves face-to-face under the portico of the Hebron Lutheran Church in Culpeper one particularly cold January day and, quote, spoke to the crowd in turn so urgently and at such length that one of Madison's ears became severely frostbitten. Years later, he would wryly describe the damaged ear as one of the honorable scars he had borne from the battlefield. On February 2nd, it would be Madison who proved victorious by a vote of 1,308 to 972. As with every other plateau that he had reached to that point, this victory would prove to be the beginning of another chapter of life with its own challenges. Now, for those of you who have been with me on this journey through presidential history for a bit, you know what's coming next. We've reached the beginning point of presidential history, April 30th, 1789. As Madison was so much entwined with the presidency from the very beginning, serving first as one of Washington's closest advisors and then moving into the role of opposition leader before rising back to a position of prominence in Jefferson's administration as Secretary of State, the main points of his life that led to his presidency have already been covered. Thus, I will refer you back to past episodes should you need more detail of his political life between 1789 and 1809. However, before we part ways, there are a few more details that are important for you to know before we transition to President Madison's administration. As likely you all know, though Madison did remain a bachelor for quite a while, he would ultimately wed during the Washington presidency. We'll discuss more of James and Dolly's relationship during the special episode on Dolly Madison, but we do need to discuss some other members of Madison's family. Thus far, we've discussed the white members of the Madison family but there is also a black branch of the family. 
The eighth in the generational link of family storytellers known either as griots or griots, depending on gender identity, Betty Kurtz, published a book in 2020 called The Other Madisons, The Lost History of a President's Black Family. The family's oral history begins with an enslaved woman named Mandy, who, in the middle of the 18th century, was abducted from her home on the African continent. I should note that, as we discussed in the previous episode, this was around the time that James Madison Sr. was still acquiring new enslaved individuals. And indeed, Mandy would come to be enslaved by James Sr. As we have seen was common in the system of slavery, James Sr. and Mandy had a child named Corrine. We have few details about Mandy or Corrine beyond the oral history. Unfortunately for descendants trying to trace back their roots, as well as students of history, records related to the enslaved individuals at Montpelier are not nearly as detailed as those at Thomas Jefferson's plantations. Thus, we rely on the oral history to give us this glimpse into life at Montpelier. At some point during his tenure as a U.S. representative, James Madison Jr., on a trip back home, became interested in his half-sister, Corrine. I should mention that we have no idea at this point of who knew what. If either James Jr. or Corrine knew of her parentage at the time, or if the white members of the family knew of James Jr.'s relations with Corrine or James Sr.'s relations with her mother, Mandy. We cannot begin to speculate as to the nature of their relationship. All we know is that, according to the oral history, the product of their union was a child named Jim, a child who, like his mother, would be held in slavery by the Madisons. In terms of Madison's white family, there are some important developments to note during this time. First, as noted in episode 1.25, Representative James Madison met the widow Dolly Todd Payne, and the two were wed on September 15, 1794. As we have in previous series, we will have a special episode devoted to Dolly Madison, so we'll talk more about their relationship then. The important thing to know in understanding Dolly's role in her husband's political career is that, as described by historian Catherine Algor, quote, James Madison always treated his wife seriously as a political partner. As early as 1794, she served as his secretary. She went on doing so through James's presidency, as he dictated letter drafts to her and conducted presidential business freely with her when his official secretary was ill. Dolly's role as a political partner extended into the social realm as well as in the business realm, and we shall see how she helped to reshape the Washington landscape as we get into the presidency. Let's leave that for there now, though and turn to that other crucial person in James Madison's life, his father. James Jr. had, as we know from previous series, retired from his seat in the U.S. House of Representatives in 1797 and returned home to Montpelier. For the remainder of his life, as noted by Madison biographer Ralph Ketchum, quote, except when required to be in Washington on public business, he lived always at Montpelier. Except for a visit to Philadelphia in the summer of 1805, made necessary by Dolly's health, Madison is not known to have left the state of Virginia and the environs of Washington after he made his commitment to the family plantation in the 1790s. Part of the reason for Madison's newfound homebodiness, as opposed to his earlier life where he had been constantly on the go, is that his father 
began to suffer from ill health. In his last few years, Colonel Madison and his wife Nellie traveled for a few weeks each summer, quote, to the healing springs where pure waters and a leisurely atmosphere revived body and spirit. Increasingly, James Jr. was the one running plantation operations. Finally, during the winter of 1800-1801, Colonel Madison fell seriously ill and finally passed away on February 27, 1801, a few days prior to Jefferson's first inauguration. As Madison had already agreed to serve as the incoming president, Secretary of State, he wrote to his friend about the family's loss and asserted that, quote, it is impossible for me now to speak of my movements with precision. Although the exact degree of agency devolving on me remains to be known, a crowd of indispensable attentions must necessarily be due from me. In this posture of things, I can only say that I shall wait the return of the post after this reaches, by which I hope to learn whether your intended continuance at Washington will admit, and the state of things will require my being there before you leave it. By this information, I shall be governed, unless imperiously controlled by circumstances here. At the time that Madison was set for the next great plateau of his political career, he was also fully assuming the role of family patriarch that he would occupy for the rest of his life. Indeed, as his father had done before him, Madison had already stepped into the role of caretaker for a young niece, the daughter of his brother Ambrose, who had passed away in 1793, after the child's mother passed away in 1798. With his father's death, James Madison was fully invested as the head of the family and the master of Montpelier. This did not mean, however, that it would be an easy transition for anyone involved, including the enslaved individuals on the plantation. As noted by Douglas Chambers, at the time of Colonel Madison's death in 1801, he enslaved 108 individuals, quote, of whom two-thirds were over age 16. With the colonel's death, his estate would have to be divided amongst his heirs, which meant, quote, the first substantial separations from the home community of slaves in decades. Though over 40 enslaved people had been given to his children over the prior quarter century, as the colonel's children lived around the same area, this meant that most of those who had left the Montpelier estate prior to 1801 were still within the area. In the fall of 1801, three estate sales were held, and the enslaved individuals were separated into lots. Ultimately, a third of the enslaved people at Montpelier would be forcibly separated from their community. One can only imagine the pain and suffering that this caused. Chambers dubbed the generation of enslaved people at Montpelier from the 1800s to the 1820s as the, quote, worryment generation, as this was a time of upheaval for them. It would take until around 1820 for the number of enslaved people at Montpelier to equal the numbers that had been present in the 1790s, and whatever working agreement had been achieved to create at least a relative form of stability for the enslaved population in the past generation would not be restored again. Though James's tenure as Secretary of State set him up for the presidential run in 1808, it was not an easy go of it to get there. We'll elaborate more on Dolly's family later in the series, but during the eight years of the Jefferson administration, the family had experienced multiple changes. Her younger sister, Anna, who had lived with the Madisons for years and was a source of comfort for Dolly, 
had married in March 1804 to Representative Richard Cutts of Massachusetts. As noted by Al Gore, quote, Since Anna's birth, the two sisters had never been separated. The fact that Anna waited until her mid-twenties to marry testifies to her happiness in the Madison family circle. Dolly fell into what Al Gore describes as, quote, a deep depression upon Anna's departure, and the next year would bring no relief as Dolly suffered from serious health issues. Though she recovered, the losses would continue to mount. Two of her nieces, Dolly and Lucy, passed away in 1806. Then in 1807, her mother, Mary Coles Payne, died of what is believed to be a stroke. In February 1808, her sister Mary died of tuberculosis. Her only surviving brother, John C. Payne, was more of a burden on the family than a source of comfort, and James Madison would attempt to help his troubled young brother-in-law by getting him an appointment as U.S. Consul in Tripoli in 1806. As noted by Al Gore, though, quote, 24-year-old John was already a full-blown alcoholic and gambler. Sending an undisciplined dissolute to an exotic locale far from home and accountability was not a good decision. Beyond the family drama, there was, of course, the political intrigue. The wagging tongues had been hard at work about the Madisons during the Jefferson years. Again from Al Gore, in the lead-up to the 1808 election, quote, in the absence of any accounts of sexual peccadilloes by James, political whisperers compared his diminutive stature and frailty with the physical presence and virility of James Monroe. Dolly, too, was the victim of social gossip as she was criticized for being, quote-unquote, oversexed, and rumors have flown about that she and her sister Anna, quote, had been pimped by Jefferson to foreign visitors. Dolly was also dubbed, quote, a British Tory and an American Federalist. She asserted herself on the social scene and was able to hold her own in a conversation. So naturally, she became the victim of attack. Dolly and James, however, would not passively accept the challenges. Instead, they would launch a social campaign to win support for James's candidacy in 1808 during a time where active public political campaigning on the candidate's part was taboo. The Madison's home at F Street had been a social center throughout his tenure as head of the State Department, and with his hat thrown in the ring in the 1808 presidential campaign, it became a pseudo-campaign headquarters, with Dolly as a leader in the effort. The Madisons by this time had learned the importance of socializing in the political arena, and they even carried it back with them to Montpelier when they returned there in 1808. Again from Al Gore, quote, Entertaining at Montpelier was a crucial part of the unofficial campaign, since Dolly could court any Federalist who happened to be in the neighborhood and any Virginians who were thinking of shifting their alliances to the Monroe camp. Even when Dolly was too sick to quit her bed, the Madisons still hosted between 15 and 20 for dinner. As you well know, the efforts on James's behalf would ultimately pay off, and James Madison would be elected the fourth president of the United States, a presidency that we shall begin to explore next time. For now, though, our time together has drawn to an end. As we close out, I'd like to thank Nikki again for providing the intro quote for this episode. Be sure to check out As the Money Burns as soon as you're done with this episode. 
I'd also like to thank the itinerant band for the use of clips from their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty as the intro and outro music for this episode. I'd also like to thank Christian of Your Podcast Pal for his audio work on this episode. If you would like to enlist Christian services for your podcast or audio project, his website is yourpodcastpal, all one word, dot com. For more information on and links to As the Money Burns, Your Podcast Pal, or the itinerant band, check out the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, dot com. I also have a special thanks to extend to our newest patron, Mark. The support provided by Mark and our other patrons helps to offset the cost of doing the podcast, which includes hosting fees, equipment, editing work, and resources for research. If you would like to join Mark as a patron, just go to patreon.com slash presidencies and sign up. I'd also like to extend my thanks to another person who recently supported the podcast by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This five-star review came from Frank and is titled Excellent First-Rate History Podcast and reads as follows, quote, I've listened to 32 episodes so far of Jerry's podcast based around the presidents of the United States. First off, his research is absolutely first class with each episode packed with primary source material. This isn't any mere podcast flying high and fast over the administrations of past presidents, but a deep dive into the personalities, foreign relations, and socioeconomic and even military wheels turning around this unique office. I can't wait to learn about the little details which add up and help shape the United States to what it is today. Thanks, Jerry, for your hard work and dedication in a field that badly needs this. Thank you so much for your kind words, Frank, and thanks to all of you who have left a rating and review for the podcast. If you haven't already, it just takes a couple of minutes and really helps in promoting this labor of love. Just search for presidencies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Podchaser, and share a few words about why you think others should be listening to this podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out via email at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also find me on social media if you're not following me on there already. I'm on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast. Again, all one word. Finally, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time as we begin our dive into the Madison presidency. Until then, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.